Hello, it's Father David Nix on the Padre Peregrino podcast. You know, a high school buddy of mine, Mark, has converted and become a traditional Catholic. He is a civil attorney, but he also runs a Catholic website called Catholic Esquire on the side. And he also has a YouTube channel that I'm going to link in the show notes. Anyway, in an interview recently, my friend Mark asked me about my life as a hermit or monk missionary, more practically. And he asked how I became a priest, especially from being raised a liberal Catholic. So this is my life as a priest, an interview with my friend Mark. And I put his interview below, as I said, in the show notes on video to his channel. But I'm also reproducing it here on audio only to my own podcast, Padre Peregrino. It goes as follows with Mark starting. All right. And this is the Catholic Esquire. And I am here and joined by Father David Nix. Uh, Father Nix, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Mark. Good to see you again. You too. And just before we begin, I will just want to make sure people who are watching this understand that in full disclosure, um, you and I have known each other for several years. We go back a ways, uh, including back to high school. Um, we attended the same high school together. We know each other uh, on a personal on a personal basis. And um, I just like to make sure everybody understands that. But I'm really not going to hold back on any questions I ask you today because I'm really interested in getting this topic of how you went from a liberal Catholic to being a traditional priest that only celebrates the Latin Mass. And that's what I'm very interested in because I too went from liberal Catholicism to tradition and it took a long time, many years. But I'm really interested in getting this idea from you as a priest and how this happened and what this looks like and what in the world was going on there because i think and this is the most talking i'm going to do throughout this trust me i'm going to let you do the talking and a deposition if this was a real deposition i'd only be asking the questions but i want to set this up because i think people are a lot of people are like us right now and they're exploring tradition they're looking into tradition they want to know what this is why we are where we're at, how we got here. People are interested in those stories, but I think it helps them in their own personal lives as well. And so I'm hoping to mainly focus on that issue issue today with you. So um, to just dive right in, can you just please tell us right now, and I'll get in your background here in a minute, right now, I understand you're a priest, where where are you a priest at, and what is your status? Well, yeah, thanks for having me again, Mark. And um, my name is Father David Nix. I am a priest of the Archdiocese of Denver, technically a diocesan hermit under Canon 603. It's kind of turned into be a little bit more of a monk missionary. And what my life looks like is a few hours of prayer and reading a day. Uh, what you see in the screens behind me there is an altar and a tabernacle. That's where I offer Mass. And so usually morning is uh, prayer, mass, divine office, mental prayer, reading exercise. And then the afternoon, I try to teach online, either through blogs or catechisms, um, scripture podcasts, scripture videos. And uh, so I am here in Denver. And, you know, you mentioned you and I went to high school together. We went to a liberal Jesuit high school. And... I remember five years ago, Mark, you and I having Thai food together when we, we both got in touch with each other again after years of being incommunicado, no break in our friendship. We just, you just lose track of guys from high school, of course. And then, uh, to run into each other and realize that we're both approaching tradition at the same time was a very surprising event. I think that's why we enjoyed getting back in touch five years ago at that Thai restaurant. And now, now we're on a, a text thread with our other buddy that's like 20 texts a day. <laughs> so uh, I do enjoy our uh, intellectual pursuits together, Mark. When we got back together, I was still in going to Nova Sordo Parish only. And you were the one who said, why aren't you going to traditional at mass? I said, I, I don't know Latin. <laughs> that was my response. And you said, oh, well, you don't have to know Latin to go to Latin mass. And so that's honestly what started the whole one of the things that started me looking into tradition, but you mentioned that you're a hermit. 
what in the world is a hermit and what does a hermit do? Is this, I, I, when you told me that originally, I thought I pictured you, I think I told you, I pictured you in some, the top of some mountain with some fire lamps, praying all day long, not talking to people or maybe being out in a desert somewhere. Yeah. You're on social media all the time. What is a hermit? So a hermit, so there's a difference between a hermit and a hermit recluse in tradition. A hermit just lives alone, which I do in what someone has named a hermaminium here. A hermit recluse is someone who doesn't talk to anybody. Under Canon 603, really, the archdiocese and me really found that was the least bad option. It, you know, being a hermit doesn't exactly fit my personality. Um, but I also wasn't willing to give up all apostolate. See, when you say I'm only going to do the Latin Mass, you don't really have a future in your diocese. Um, but they also didn't have reason to suspend me. So this was sort of a detente to be under Canon 603 as a hermit. Um, but it's essentially a monk mission. If someone goes to my channel, you know, I ran into a American Eastern Catholic hermit two weeks ago in Lourdes, France. And I put him on my channel and we talked about how in the history of the church, uh, hermits and monks traveled to evangelize. I mean, if you look at the origins of the Franciscan order, um, nobody, you know, if you meet a Franciscan on the streets of the Bronx, Nobody says, aren't you supposed to be in your monastery? But essentially, uh, the Franciscans had a contemplative basis to their order. And so the notion, uh, you know, nobody asked the Franciscan if, if they should, uh, if they can just be quiet on evangelization. The reason my enemies point out that I'm a hermit and shouldn't be on social media isn't because they're really looking out for everyone fulfilling their vocations perfectly. I mean, why would why would I be being attacked by people who have had annulments? We, we won't go down that rabbit hole is of that fulfilling your vocation. Yeah. Why would all these people with annulments be attacking me if they were so worried about sticking to your original true vocation? No, they're mad at what I say, which is traditional Catholicism. You know, I said to a bishop once, you know, the old phrase, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. He said, yeah, I said, for me, it really is what I say, because I say it really nicely. <laughs> so uh, the people who have a problem with this term hermit, or technically that's what I am, just because I've turned it into monk missionary uh, doesn't mean it's a total break with the history of Catholic hermits. Okay. Now, is that at all related to your website name, Padre Peregrino? I mean, what's Padre Peregrino? Yeah, so my website's Padre Peregrino. It sounds pretty ridiculous if you just transliterate it into the English, Father Pilgrim. It sounds like someone would have like a, a bugle gun and a buckle hat or something like that. But it's a little bit better sounding. And see, I, I actually started the, the blog when I walked the Camino for the first time in 2011. It was just to tell family and friends what I was up to. It wasn't, it was never supposed to be a tool for church reform. I thought priests that made podcasts were doofuses. I mean, it really was just a little updating thing for walking the Camino of Santiago. That's that thousand-year-old pilgrimage out in Spain to just tell some family and friends what I was up to. And so Padre just means priest. Peregrino means pilgrim, one who walks. And by this point, this is probably a little uh, preemptive start to the big question, how I went from liberal to traditionalist. But when I was ordained in 2010, I had five parishes in five years after that. In the Novus Ordo world, I was trying to be a conservative Novus Ordo priest from 2010 to 2015. And so it was a little bit of a self-deprecating joke that I'm a pilgrim bouncing around parish to parish because having five, had five parishes in five years, I was okay. truly a wanderer. Um, now, I didn't want that many parishes, but honestly, all these departures usually had to do with fights with Eucharistic ministers. Um, you know, people hear of a priest with five parishes in five years, and the first thing they think of is the priest-child scandals, right? But I can assure you, it was uh, what's, what fills my file was arguments with Eucharistic ministers over Eucharistic safety and Eucharistic vigilance. Yeah, I wanna, I'm going to come back to that. That's that's really interesting to me, and I, I'm definitely going to come back to that. But let's let's bring this back in and start back at the beginning okay. um, you were a liberal catholic growing up what was your your um childhood like growing up were you a cradle catholic what was your family catholic yeah. can you give us some background on that 
So, you know, where we went to high school, I worked for Amnesty International when I was there. I remember with my tie-dye t-shirt, I was writing letters against the death penalty. Um, right after high school, before I went to a Jesuit university, I, I tried to get my, actually, no, this was my first year at Boston College, also a Jesuit place. I wanted to have dreadlocks, but my hair was too thin as a white man. So I braided it up. I went to the black part of Boston and had a black lady braid my hair up. And then they put this goo in it. And the goal, if you just don't wash your hair, was to was to actually dread it. And I came back to Piccolo's, probably a restaurant you remember. And the owner of Piccolo's, which sadly just closed about a month ago, I was I was the server. I was a waiter at the tables. And I had these just like really sickly looking dreads and he's like hey dave i like the hair but it's got to go because <laughs> it was so dirty you know but it just this just shows you kind of where i was at trying to have dreadlocks and and you know tie-dye I, I really wasn't even a very good hippie and maybe part of the reason is because i had certain groundings to natural law like when i was 13 i found out what abortion was and even though i don't want to scandalize your listeners too much but even though i had a few joints to smoke in the future even after this as soon as I found out what abortion was, I knew I had to give every part of my life to end this. So like me praying in front of abortion centers on Friday and smoking a little pot on Saturday, that wasn't hypocritical for me. It was like, I really didn't know the truth on a lot of it. My conscience kicked in on some of those things, right? I'm, we're all sinners, but it wasn't hypocrisy. It was like, I really knew there was something a lot worse about killing a baby than having a joint. And I just had to do everything I, I could. Now, thanks be to God, I haven't smoked a joint in 20 or 25 years. But when I was 13, I knew how bad abortion was. But this gives this this next story will give you an idea how broken my theology was. I went around our Jesuit high school where you and I went, Mark, and I went asking lay people and Jesuits, can you help me start a pro-life club? This was the late 90s. I couldn't find anybody. Finally, I found a young, kind of middle-of-the-road Jesuit scholastic who said yes. And then remember, this was back when you're in my high school was all boys. There was like three guys that showed up, myself and then this Jesuit scholastic. And my opening line to start a pro-life club at this Jesuit high school was, isn't the Catholic Church hypocritical? Isn't the Catholic Church hypocritical for being pro-life and anti-contraception? <laughs> oh, God, for, God forgive me for saying that, right? But as I said this, the Jesuit scholastic behind me was nodding his head in total agreement. Now, this gives you probably kind of an idea of where I was in high school. I think you were in the Young Republicans Club. Like, this shows you can be kind of right, kind of conservative on a few issues like abortion. I think you and I both knew abortion was wrong in high school, but I was getting pot wrong. I was getting contraception wrong. I mean, I wasn't sleeping around but I thought it was fine in Catholic marriages to use contraception. Right. And um, I think that's probably very similar to you that you, you had a, a basis that liberalism was insane, but you hadn't really made the leap from recognizing the truths of natural law to the truths of divine revelation. I, I had very, I, my, my faith background was very shallow. And that's why, and, and so that's why I wanted to ask you, you know, um, you know, growing up through grade school and all of that, I mean, did you, did you feel you were pretty comfortable with the basics of the faith, the catechism, what the church taught? Were you, did you think that you were on the right track there or did you even care? Oh, I thought I was on the right track. I, I work in soup kitchens. I mean, I was very well known at our high school for all my involvement in social justice and serving the poor. And I certainly don't regret the things the Jesuits taught me about loving the poor. I mean, I think it's important to realize that, you know, we're all on a journey with the church in such shambles right now. We are all on such a journey that we're all trying to figure this out from the point of view of divine revelation and obedience, balancing both of these things. What was my level of catechesis in high school? It was pretty poor. I mean, I grew up my parents always had on evangelical radio and my parents liked the Bible. They actually met at a charismatic um, parish in Denver in the late seventies. So like, I am thankful to my parents that I grew up with a love of scripture. There was always on Protestant radio and my dad had little Bible cards that he gave me. And so I, I got to know the Bible pretty well. It wasn't due to the Jesuits. I think it was due to my parents. Um, and so, like, I had the kind of a Bible basis for my parents, a social justice basis from the Jesuits, 
But it wasn't until you and I were juniors at this Jesuit high school. And one of my best friends was a senior and his dad came down the stairs. We we had just finished probably writing letters or something for Amnesty International. At least I was came back to his house in Aurora, Colorado. And his dad, his dad was a Korean war vet named Pip skinny guy with a, an oxygen tank. And he would challenge me on things. He'd be like, are you going to Holy communion with these sins on your heart? And I'm like, who are you to tell me what to do? But when he gave me a book of Eucharistic miracles, it was either the one by the, the Cruz couple or the Bob and Penny Lord couple. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I think it was Bob and Penny Lord. And I looked through this book and it was just like Lanciano and Santorin. I mean, all these Eucharistic miracles where you have a doubting priest who says over the bread, this is my body. And it turns into a bleeding piece of flesh. A, you know, usually they find out to be cardiac muscle. And I looked at Pip in junior in high school and I said, you mean this happens every mass? And he said, yes. I said, well, now I understand why you want me to go to confession for these sins. So I was like, am I a real dull kid or did I never learn this the right way? So I went back to like, you know, before you and I got to our Jesuit high school, I went to a Catholic grade school in Denver, very liberal. I had 10 years of education at that high school or that grade school from pre-kindergarten through eighth before going to Jesuit high school, before going to Jesuit university, 10 years. So I went back to look at like first grade, second grade books. What did it really say about the Eucharist in the 1980s in Denver? And it called the Eucharist, the bread of the community and all these terms that were totally horizontal, nothing vertical. Not only did it not mention the sacrifice to the mass, These books didn't even mention the true presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. They didn't call him the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord. They used terms like the bread of the community. And so when I look back at having received the Eucharist, if not in mortal sin, at least grave sin through my time in high school, part of the reason is because I never even learned that was Christ truly present. That's the Son of God in the Eucharist. That's shocking. I mean, going that long in, in grade school, I mean, I'm the same boat, but I mean, it's going through that long in grade school and not having a true understanding of the real presence. One of the most basic fundamentals of the faith is, um, see, that's, that's, that's the generation we grow up in because we're the first generation. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that basically grew up in maybe a few years older than us, but not by much all Vatican post Vatican two world. We never, had the opportunity to see a Latin mass before um, the new mass and, or experience that parish life at all. Yeah, I'm 44. I think you're 45. Probably people uh, that have a decade on us would also have been ignorant of the traditions of the church or could have been ignorant of the traditions of the church. Now, Pip, the guy who came down the stairs, the old Korean war vet, he was more of an EWTN Catholic than a traditional Catholic. And that's not a rip on EWTN. This guy, he watched EWTN like four or five hours a day. He loved EWTN, right? And I, so that's where I have to give credit to kind of the neocon world, the EWTN world that brought me out of liberal Catholicism to at least see the basics of the faith. Again, we're not talking red trad traditionalist pre-Vatican II theology, but when you're walking in as much darkness as I was, EW10 Catholicism was a major light in my life. Let's 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 move on and talk about that because once you go on to college, I think you went to Jesuit College as well, right? Yeah, was it Boston College. Okay, Boston. were you at that point planning to be a priest, or you know how did that come about when you decided to become a priest? Yeah, that was much later. When I went off to university, I was pre med and. My hopes at this point was to be a medical missionary, get married, have a family. And so I started pre-med and probably wanted to go to French-speaking Africa. So I took a bunch of classes in French, went to study uh, study abroad at University of Paris, um, started on the ambulance when I was 19 as an EMT, worked nights through Boston College, um, um, like once a week. It wasn't like every night on the ambulance, but I started working on the ambulance later became a paramedic. Um, but my goal in all that was realizing that most of French-speaking Africa needed primary care, not like urology surgery or something. And so I was going to go 
to physician assistant school. Um, and I was, I dated a bit. There was a, there was um, one when we talked about getting married mm. and I didn't really have any interest in being a priest, but because of this conversion to like at least middle of the road Catholicism, I had some understanding of saving souls, but I still prioritize saving bodies above that. I mean, and that's where I loved my time on the ambulance. I, I wanted to be a medical missionary. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have a family over there. Um, but going into Boston College, which was even more liberal than the Jesuit high school we went to, that was more and more of these scales falling. Like I remember my freshman year, it was, they call it the hungover mass because it's like Sunday night at 8 p.m. And those two words obviously shouldn't even be in the same sentence, but that just shows you what an impious approach people have to the faith in these Jesuit universities. And I asked this one Jesuit priest after, because see, I had just come to a, a belief in the true presence of the Eucharist a year prior. So I went on maybe a little bit overly zealous witch hunt that first year on stuff, or just wanted to figure out what people really believed. So I went up to this Jesuit after he had mass on the freshman part of campus and I said, do you think that what I just received from your hands or whatever, Eucharistic minister, whatever, do you think that's really Jesus Christ? Do you really think that's the body of Christ? And he got mad. There was a flash in his eyes and he poked me in the chest and he goes, you are the body of Christ. And it's like, whoa, there was some anger there that uh, I didn't really kick off. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> Poking me saying you are the body of Christ, right? He was angry because I brought up, I, I don't know what he had once believed or maybe even just heard at one point in his life that at one point Catholics actually believed the Eucharist was the son of God, you know, but when he did that, it kind of made me realize there's some energy behind these debates. This isn't just mm -hmm. reading in books. People mm -hmm. in the Catholic church are very fervent about one of two sides of this fence. Do you think, do you think some of these liberal Catholics do you think they believe, I've heard this before um, from Jesuits actually, uh, that concepts like purgatory are just these sort of medieval concepts that we no longer believe anymore. Do you think there's that idea also with the real presence in the Eucharist that, well, we don't really believe it's the, it's, you know, the body, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. It's, we believe it in a certain way, but not in the way, literally, in other words. Do you think that's out there? I, I don't know if there's any faith among some of these people. I mean, it was two years later when I, I kept going down this rabbit hole of Jesuit apostasy when I was there. And I really reached the bottom when I asked the head of the biology department at Boston College, who was a Jesuit priest? I mean, you have to realize this is even more baseline than the Eucharist. I went to the Jesuit head of the biology department. And this is, I mean, this is the second most prestigious Jesuit university on the East coast, second only to Georgetown. And I asked him, is abortion wrong? I asked a Jesuit priest, head of the biology department of Boston college is abortion wrong. This was in 98. And he said, we can't really know the truth about that. So we're not even talking advanced topics like the Holy sacrifice of the mass he wasn't sure it's wrong to kill an unborn baby, right? So, And we're so not I'm, talking about some lay Catholic that maybe goes to Mass once or twice a year on Christmas and Easter. We're talking about a man who's ordained, a priest, who holds himself out as a priest and a representative of the church, telling you as a student those things. Yeah, so I, I, you can't even say these people are Catholic anymore. This isn't like these are bad Catholics. Like, this is not Catholicism at all. So, so I can't speculate as to your question of like, how, how, how good of a faith. I mean, it's just, it's not the religion I have. I don't, I can't judge their hearts, but it's not my religion anymore. Well, I know people keep saying we can't judge their hearts, but we can judge what they tell us. Exactly. That's I mean, the thing. they tell they us tell things. I believe if they you. tell me this is what I believe, then I just assume that they're telling me the truth. That's right. I'm not judging their hearts. I mean, that's, I just believe what they tell me. Um, so how do you go from that then, that kind of background to saying, okay, that's it. I'm signing up and being a priest. How, and how do, you oh, yeah. go, how do you go to that? 
Well, so I started visiting Father Michelle's order. I started taking buses, Greyhound buses from Boston down to New York. I heard of these new Franciscans, um, Father Michelle's order. They're more charismatic. They weren't traditionalists. So we're, we're not even close to the tradition thing yet. But these, I was really impressed that you had a bunch of guys who had lived bad lives. They were straight. They left these girls. Some of them were drug dealers. Uh, and then they wanted to go be poor Franciscans on the streets. I was really impressed with their love of the poor because they still had a love of the poor. Hopefully still do. And here you have them sleeping on the floor, walking around the Bronx with rosaries around their belts or their cinchers, evangelizing, um, leading retreats. And, and this was right when I started waking up to the salvation of souls. Like, you know, I'm, I'm working as a EMT later as a paramedic. I want to save bodies. And now I'm starting to get an interest in saving souls. And so I get to know these charismatic, but relatively traditional, relatively traditional Franciscans called the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, also known as the CFR. So I started staying with them in Harlem, Bronx, Newark, um, probably five, 10 times, uh, broke up with my girlfriend, talked to them about joining them. But then it was probably my 12th visit. I remember in Harlem, probably my 12th visit, I just had a sense. I have a teaching charism. I have a teaching ability and even though I love their lifestyle of poverty and I love their lifestyle of evangelization and bringing, not just bringing soup to the poor, but bringing the gospel to the poor, I realized like I was chomping at the bit to, to really teach the faith more in depth. I don't mean, I don't mean real advanced nuances. I mean, I really like teaching and they were kind of just the shock troops of getting people to come to the basics of the gospel. Um, and so I came back, I met with Archbishop Schaap, you told him I broke up with my girlfriend, I was looking at the CFRs, but I think I'm called to enter diocesan life. And he was pretty shocked. We spent about seven hours that day together. He was shocked I broke up with her because we had been talking about getting married. He was shocked that I didn't feel called to be a Franciscan because him and I had been talking about that for years, maybe not years, but a couple years um, as like a possibility, but I don't think he ever thought I was going to pull the trigger because I was so interested in medicine and getting married and, and everything else. And, um, and now he was very transparent. Don't join the Capuchins. I mean, cause you know, Shappy was no traditionalist, but he saw where the Capuchins were going. So the funny thing is in the late nineties and early two thousands, he, a Capuchin was telling men to go join the CFRs in the Bronx. Don't join the Capuchins. <laughs> So it was kind of shocking when after all this discussion of CFR versus Capuchin versus marriage, I come back and I say, I think I'm supposed to be a diocesan priest for the Archdiocese of Denver. Uh, so then one thing led to the other. And then by uh, 2004, I entered his diocese as a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Denver. Okay. And then during seminary, I mean, just we don't have to spend too much time on this, but what was your seminary experience like then? Um, what could you see in, in during this time? Were you able to sort of see this division between, you know, traditionalists versus non-traditionalists or was that still not in your worldview? Yet? Yeah. So God, God forgive me when I was, when I just got off the ambulance, I was making fun of the traditional Latin mass. I'm like, why do you need 52 crosses in the mass? Just give me the Eucharist. You know, I believed in the true presence. So I thought this was kind of like the blue collar tough guy way of talking of just like, you don't need 52 crosses in the mass. Just give me the Eucharist, right? And uh, so I remember talking to Archbishop Chapu when we were at his gym. We played like racquetball or something. And I said, there's souls going to hell. I want to go save souls. I want to evangelize. Why are people worried about delicate liturgical issues like this? And this is funny because this was when he was to my right on these things. And he said, well, no, I mean, those things kind of matter. I mean, those, those things matter. Um, now, if Archbishop Chappie has any idea what I put online, it's probably quite shocked that I'm far to his right. But point is, at that time in 2004, you got to remember, these were what we thought at the time were the glory days of Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict. I remember I was with I was on a road trip with the with the guys who now run. They're now priests, the, the priests who run the podcast called Catholic Stuff You Should Know out of, out of Denver here. We were, I think, in Minnesota on a road trip together when Pope John Paul II died. And that was definitely the end of an era for all of us. Um, I remember jumping up and down, cheering a year later when Pope Benedict was made Pope. I mean, I was so excited. 
when Pope Benedict was made Pope, um, like, I guess it wasn't the year after that. I guess it was months after that. So, you know, most of my seminary experience was under Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict, Archbishop Chaput. And so these, these were the days when I really believed in the new evangelization. So I didn't really see any divide in the church very much. I mean, I saw a little bit of a divide. Like I remembered my Jesuit days. I remember those were crazy, but I felt like I was in the womb of the, just the heart of the church. Archbishop Chaput was going to take the world by storm. Pope Benedict was going to take the world by storm. Yeah, we had just lived through the spotlight scandals of, of Boston. I had just escaped Boston right before, you know, I graduated BC, Boston College 2000. Um, they got news of the scandals in 2001 in Boston, but they didn't release them because of 9-11 in New York. So they waited till 2002 for the Boston Globe spotlight to release those. So, yeah, that was a big damper on all of our lives. But it's like, ah, oh, but we believed in the new evangelization. We're going to go conquer the world for Christ. So I go to the basement of the seminary library and read the church fathers, read the church fathers, read the church fathers and be excited about evangelization. But I didn't really realize what seminary staff formation was already seeing in me as a big problem at this point that I didn't see because like, I really believed in the hermeneutic of continuity at this point. I really believed you could square the circle. I believed I could study St. Thomas Aquinas at night and go do the new evangelization of Pope Jean Paul II during the day. I had no interest in the Latin mass, um, but I really believed the pre-Vatican II doctrine and the post-Vatican II doctrine could really just be lined up. If you just saw the stars all perfectly aligned, you could really make it happen. But the seminary staff formation was smarter than me. They were seeing, I was way too involved in tradition at this point. I didn't even know it was tradition, but just because it wasn't totally liturgical tradition. It was just like, I double genuflected when we had adoration every day. And that was a problem because they thought I looked like I was out doing others and being pious. Now, you and I know if our Lord is in exposition, that is the tradition of the church. You're supposed to double genuflect on both knees, not just one. Um, I received communion on the tongue. And like, I just thought this is what we were all going to fight for in a very conservative Novus Ordo diocese going forward. Um, and so already I started getting called names like rigid and um, not pastoral. And, and I, because I came from fire stations where it's pretty normal to haze guys. I thought, Oh, okay. They're just hazing me. This is just Christ cross in my life to carry right now. These were other seminarians. These were other. Oh, this was mostly staff. Like I was pretty much the same level of conservative as the other seminarians. This was, this was a, in great part, the staff, uh, seminary staff, who Shapu had relatively conservative people running it, but they were already seeing in me, I wasn't signing on to the Vatican II religion. And God bless them for seeing that. They saw it a lot quicker than I did. Um, but I thought, oh, I just have to power through this because this is just hazing. And they really want me to be a priest moving in this. They really want me to be a priest moving in tradition as much. They, they're just toying with me. <laughs> no. They really saw what a problem I was going to be long before I did. So, so you graduate seminary, you get assigned uh, to Novus Ordo Parish. Um, we don't have to talk about names of parishes because I don't care about that. It doesn't really matter. But, um, you know, can you just briefly describe, you know, your, you know, what your life was as a Novus Ordo parish priest and maybe talk about some of those issues with the Eucharist you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I don't want to go too much into those, but I'll just say that repeatedly there was arguments with Eucharistic ministers and what I would break out to defend myself was Redemption of Sacramentum. That's a 2004 document written by Cardinal Rinzi, signed by Pope John Paul II, and it basically gives all the rules for a conservative Novus Ordo, and not just a conservative Novus Ordo. These were all the rules for making sure the Eucharist was protected and the Novus Ordo had some sense of tradition about it. And when I was in a, I still am same diocese when, you know, when I was in a conservative diocese sent to conservative pastors under a conservative Bishop, um, you know, putatively conservative on all those things. 
And I couldn't even defend myself with a 2004, not a 1604, a 2004 document signed by Pope John Paul II to make sure that my Novus Ordo uh, lined up with what Cardinal Renzi of Africa wrote. That's when I started to realize there was no hermeneutic continuity. If, if a conservative diocese couldn't even let me protect the Eucharist in a conservative way at conservative parishes under conservative pastors, because they weren't going to make me a pastor because they thought I was too extreme. But wait a minute, how was I so extreme for just doing what was on the book? I mean, I'm talking about the post-Vatican II rules for the post-Vatican II mass. I was trying to hold to these things. And then after five parishes and five years of, of being, you know, actually, the funny thing is, most of these places I asked to be released from, people think I was kicked out of all these places. Most of these I went, and we had three bishops in that period, so this isn't ripping on one person. I would go to one of our three bishops in those first five years and say, I really can't do it here. I don't like, you know, people think I like fighting. I I have actually an opposition in my soul to conflict. And so I was like, I don't want to fight with these Eucharistic ministers. Can you please move me? You know, and but but then I started to really realize um, there's no rules to the Novus Ordo. If, if I am sent to conservative pastors in a conservative diocese and they won't let me protect the Eucharist, there's there's really no hermeneutic of continuity. Can you give me an example, just one of uh, an example of when you, what you where you felt you had to protect the Eucharist? What the issue was? Yeah, so there was there was one parish I was up at up north, and um, I was cleaning. It was a big parish. I was cleaning all the vessels of the of of mass. This was like three fourths the way through mass. So I've already received communion myself. I've already distributed. But we have all these Eucharistic ministers. I am cleaning all these chalices, but there's still some of my Eucharistic ministers out there. And one lady walks up to me and she goes, "I lost it." And I said, "You lost what?" This is at the altar at this big parish in Northern Colorado. And I said, you lost what? And she goes, I lost a host. I said, what happened? And she said, well, an older gentleman came over and the host floated out into, I'll call it the precious blood because you and I know it's the precious blood. I'm sure she probably said the wine. Uh, and I fished it out with the purificator and I kept distributing the cup. And then I walked over here and it's gone. So what she did is she took a, a, a man drank the precious blood, the body floated out in the blood. She fished it out with the purificator, probably got the precious blood all over the floor, crumpled up the Eucharist in the purificator, decided her job was too important to come back to the altar and kept just giving out the precious blood. And then by the time she walked over, the purificator had dropped the Eucharist on the floor. Now, God bless her for at least being honest with me. Padre Pio would have started screaming at this point, not that Padre Pio would ever even allow Eucharistic ministers but I just said, well, if that happens again, make sure to retire the chalice. So that should give me an example how charitable I was. I mean, if I had any sin in this, it was not being angry enough. All I said is, if that happens again, you need to retire the chalice. So I went out like an idiot looking all over the church in the middle of mass for this lost host. People probably just thought I had lost my mind, right? And um, so I set up a meeting with the bishop and the vicar for clergy was there. And the vicar for clergy said at the beginning of the meeting, this is a week later, why are you the problem everywhere we send you? Why are you the problem everywhere we send you? Notice nothing else was on the dockets, nothing disciplinary, nothing pastoral. All of the pastoral things in my file all had to do with this type of stuff. And so, so when he said that, why are you the problem everywhere we send you? Then I realized they just don't care about the Eucharist. I mean, I brought the case of a lost host of the Eucharist and I was the problem. That's when I knew I had to switch exclusively to the Latin man. Now, some of your listeners might be saying, oh, so Father Nix is wounded. He went there because he's, he went to tradition because he's wounded. Yeah, but I gave it a decade of a shot. This wasn't, this wasn't a month or two. This was giving the neoconservative Novus Ordo world a decade of a shot and still following the post-Vatican rules of the post-Vatican II mass was not good enough. There's no hermeneutic continuity. It wasn't the liberals that convinced me there was no hermeneutic of continuity. It was the so-called conservatives that convinced me there's no hermeneutic of continuity. So is it fair to say that it wasn't necessarily the new mass itself that caused you to want to do the Latin mass? It was some of the things you observed and witnessed, witnessed that was occurring at these masses that, weren't, that wasn't even 
in the in the rubrics that was outside of what should have been happening is that what really triggered you to look into only doing the latin mass yes that is true however probably where you and i are at if i can speak for you and i think since you and our our buddy text so many times a day i think i can say this is probably your and my belief too now we believe the new mass was programmed for this confusion not just that the rules written by people like Cardinal Lorenzi happen to be disobeyed by bishops. Now, as I look a lot deeper, I see that this mass was written for confusion. How do I know that? Well, I mean, one of the clearest proofs of this is when people say, well, then all of the bishops in the 70s, they failed to do what the poor council fathers who were so wise and smart wanted to do. They didn't do it. Well, hold on. What did the council fathers do when they went back to their diocese? They all established totally liberal liturgies. So wait a minute. Are we saying the council fathers didn't follow the council fathers? The council fathers didn't implement Vatican II the way they wrote it? Of course they did. They wrote in ambiguity so they could come back and establish a totally liberal liturgy. So, you know, what happened to me wasn't an accident. Um, it was never meant to be an orthodox liturgy. Sorry to say it, just never was meant. To, I think it's valid. I'm not doubting its validity, but it was by God's, as I've said before to you, it's not by God's mercy that mass is valid. It's by, or sorry, it's not by God's justice that mass is valid. It's by God's mercy it's valid. So he doesn't leave his people. Okay, so then what happens? How Do you have to learn how to celebrate the Latin mass and... You know, is that a hard thing to do for a priest that's never done that before? Or, you know, what happens from there? Yeah. So, as I said, I was ordained in 2010. Kind of this final event that was the straw that broke the camel's back, at least as far as Eucharistic ministry stuff, was around 2015. But I was doing about, from about 2000, <coughs> from about 2010 to 2015, I was doing about one Latin Mass a month. I I had... um taken a one credit class in seminary on it. See, this was under Pope Benedict, Samorum Pontificum. I kind of took a they class. Had a, they had a class in your seminary on the traditional Latin mass? Yeah, they hesitantly allowed Father Jackson to come. I know there's a lot of energy around that name right now. But um, yeah, I learned, I learned the Latin mass from Father Jackson. And uh, he came, they hesitantly allowed him to give a one credit class. And so my diaconate year, I learned it from him. Um, and, uh, and then I started doing one TLM a month at your parish, at your parish. Well, probably one month would be in a private chapel in the rectory. And then the next month it'd be public. Then one month privately. And then the next month publicly. Yeah. So, so I was slowly, um, introduced. And then when I was at a parish in Fort Collins, I actually got a Sunday mass TLM. I got a Sunday TLM started in Fort Collins, which is still actually going up there seven years later. Um, so I was da- probably the best way to put it is, you know, I've been a priest 13 years. The first half of those 13 years, I was dabbling in tradition. And the second half, I was exclusively tradition. But I wouldn't be honest to say if it was an, to say it was an overnight change. I mean, I had already been dabbling in tradition for the first six or seven years you know but like like, let me give another example how perfect how how awesome tradition is when i memorized the old rite of absolution i walked the camino again in 2015 and walking the camino in 2015 i i I learned because i wanted to be a missionary i've said this on taylor taylor marshall's podcast i learned french spanish portuguese and so i'd be walking the camino i could hear confessions in english french spanish portuguese and the amazing thing is originally I was going to have four or five little pieces of paper for absolution in, well, I already knew the English, but three pieces of paper for French, Spanish, and Portuguese. And then I realized, wait a minute, all I have to do is memorize the Latin. This sounds close enough to what anyone who speaks French, Spanish, and Portuguese is going to want to hear in their own native language. And then I did that. I just memorized the Latin. And it was like everyone was so happy to have absolution, whether they spoke English, French, Spanish, Portuguese. They were so happy to have absolution in Latin. That was another one of those like milestone moments of, Wow, the pre-Vatican II sacraments were really perfect in every way. Even even for Van, this isn't just for you know hanging out with white gloves in your beautiful suburban parish. This is even walking pilgrimages. Tradition has it right. Um. So did you start? Did you? Were you the? 
was it your decision then not to to say the new la- the new mass anymore? Yeah, it was my decision not to do the new mass. Um, that also came on the Camino at one point, actually, when um, I wanted to. You see, when I walked the Camino in 2015, I wanted to do new mass one day, Latin mass the next day, new mass one day, Latin mass the next day. And when I saw the opposition, even when I was in a church in Spain with 20 side altars where it would have been very easy to let me do the Latin mass, when I saw even in Europe this major, major opposition to tradition, and even in Europe it was even worse against even like a conservative Novus Ordo, then I realized that I had to do what was going to save my soul. So really my first movement from all the Novus Ordo sacraments to tradition was fear of offending God. Now, since then, I've fallen in love with the seven old sacraments. But the initial move (laughs) was a realization that I was literally going to go to hell as a priest if I couldn't find a place that was going to let me obey old and even new school rules and that trying to be obedient at the local level and the divine level or like the the ecclesial level through time, the more and more I realized that was impossible, absolutely impossible. I was afraid of going to hell. That's when I said, I got to make this switch exclusively to tradition. Now, was there problems before Vatican II in the map? Yeah, but you kind of had to really try hard. You know, like if people always say, well, people did a traditional Latin mass in 12 minutes. Okay, did that ever happen before Vatican II? Yeah, but you really, really had to try to offend God to make a TLM go 12 minutes, where in my average parish life in the Novus Ordo, I was offending God not even trying to because I was giving out communion to some people people in sin. So at least the traditional Latin Mass, even though it's not absolutely foolproof, of course there's been priests for 2,000 years offering Mass and mortal sin occasionally, the rubrics are so watertight that you're pretty well protected to be doing God's will in all of the old sacraments. You know, I just mentioned confession. Like, how many times have you been to confession and the priest wings it in English and you noticed two, four, eight, ten words are missing? You know why I've never messed up giving absolution in Latin? You know why I've never winged it? Because I don't know Latin enough to wing it. So when I memorize the words of absolution in Latin, I can't get creative because my Latin's not good enough to get creative. You know, you go to a priest and say, I absolve you from all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, he added all, so I feel a lot better that he said all. Do you think I would ever add the word omnia, ego te absolva, omnia peccatis, in omni pati? No, because it's not even in your vocabulary. You just say, ego te absolva, peccatis tu, in omni pati, spirit, spirit, santi. So you don't add stuff because you don't know how to add stuff. It's so protected in tradition. That's a great, it's a great point. So, um, all right. So you moved on from parish life and I know you've done so many things, um, since that time. Um, you know, can you just briefly explain some of the uh, activities you've been involved in? I know you mentioned pro-life stuff. You continue to do that and uh, anything else you think is important just to give us an idea about your activities. Yeah, I'm um, continued pro-life work. Um, being a hermit or monk missionary or whatever I am, um, still in good standing, able to teach online, still get letters of suitability if I go somewhere. But I, um, most of my travels are more evangelization-based than, than sacrament-based these days. So I don't even request letters of suitability <laughs> very much. Um, some of the evangelization-based stuff is handing out miraculous medals. I think if if I'm famous for anything in the Catholic world is that I tell people to put a chain on the miraculous medal. It's probably all I'll ever be remembered for is telling people to put a chain on the miraculous medal as you hand it out. So, you know, I, I just try to give those out and that's kind of my go-to on evangelization. I had an Uber driver the other night from Ethiopia who is a Muslim and he happily received a miraculous medal with a chain on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know, you know, about my work of getting arrested in abortion centers. We don't, cause trouble we pray prayerfully remain in the abortion center counseling women and asking them peacefully to leave and we won't leave until every baby and mom is safe and of course i mean the point isn't to get arrested with red rose rescue but that's that's what happens um because they don't listen to us they will not leave without every baby and mother being safe um and so my life you know the fact i don't have to do the new sacraments the fact that I offer mass behind that room divider that you see behind me, yeah, that's kind of lonely, but 
I like the fact I'm not dealing with the politics of Paris life anymore. I like the fact if I feel called to get arrested in an abortion center, I can do that. I like the fact I can um, hand out miraculous medals on the streets and not deal with Eucharistic ministers. So it's certainly not the life I expected when I was ordained 13 years ago. Um, uh, but I was very willing to be a good parish priest. As I said, you know, hearing confessions till after midnight, I liked that life. I think I was pretty good at it, but if I wasn't welcome in it, I'm going to cut out a different life. And that's essentially what, what has happened for myself and a, and a lot of priests. There's, there's a me in every diocese, you know, and um, if we don't leave the priesthood like they usually want us to do, then we have to kind of cut our teeth in a, in a new way of life. And, and so God uses us in, in different ways. I never expected to be involved in church reform online, but that is the pathway that opened. You, you, and you do spend a lot of time online. I mean, I, I see your, or at least you have social media presence. Let's put it that way. Um, and I know you've been criticized for it. It's it, they, I've seen it. And so, you know, how do you respond to that when people say, why, why, why are you a priest talking about all this politics and all these non-religious things? And shouldn't you be, you know, up in a cave praying or something like that? I mean, what's your response to that? So my name's Father David Nix. I'm, I guess I'm named after King David. And there's a great time, you know, when King David is leaving one of the cities that I think he's losing. There's a guy named Shimei and David's coming down this hill and Shimei now, David still has his full army, or at least some of his army. And this guy named Shimei is throwing rocks at his head and dust at his head and stuff. And it's so cool because you can tell David still has some loyal friends. And one guy with a sword says, do you want me to lop that dog's head off? <laughs> like he's he's leaving and this guy's throwing dirt at, at David for having lost this city. And you got to love it if you had a friend who says, had a sword and said, do you want me to lop his head off? But this was King David's answer. He goes, no, because he might be speaking the Lord's words to me as a prophet. This homeless guy who's lost his mind, who's against King David, he realizes there's a truth in that. So when I see someone say he's online too much, I'm at the point now where I'm like, yeah, that person is right. I'm going to do more for the church if I go and pray. And so today I actually did start new resolutions. Today's the Feast of St. Peter and Paul when you're recording this. And um, I do have new resolutions and I've been pretty good today at it. And I have to continually go back. It's like when I was at the conference for the coalition for canceled priests three or four days ago, I broke a 10 year boycott on drinking Starbucks coffee. I hadn't drink, drank Starbucks coffee in 10 years, something like that, maybe one cup in 10 years, but I boycotted them. And then Steve Cunningham, he didn't even catch me with my cup. And, oh, you're the one who texted me this, Mark. It wasn't even a cup in front of me. It happens to be that I had already finished my cup, but the picture that Steve Cunningham caught was someone else from this hotel where we had the conference drinking Starbucks. It wasn't even mine, but the fact that he kind of blew that up online, I could have gotten all mad at Steve because he's a friend. He really should have brought it to me first. But my conscience tagged me when I bought that rotten cup of coffee Actually, Kennedy Hall bought it. For, oh, sorry, Kennedy. I mean, you get in trouble with that. But I asked him to get me a cup of coffee. He was already in line. He gave it to me. I knew it was a problem when I was drinking it because I'd been boycotting Starbucks for 10 years. But I see Steve Cunningham as just a godsend, kind of like Shimei to, to King David, that usually usually my enemies, 90% of what they say is a false accusation. But I've, I've, lear I've learned to find in that 10% something really good to listen to. So should I be online? less yes i should be online less and even my enemies can see that so they're right i'll try to reduce it okay um you mentioned the canceled priest conference um you were there um, yeah what is a canceled priest what is it yeah that's a good question so as i said about five minutes ago um i'm still in good standing i'm not canceled we joke i'm semi-canceled since they're not going to like establish some traditional Latin mass parish here for me. Um, but you'll find that's the case for a lot of quote unquote canceled priests is a lot of them under restricted ministry, but aren't suspended. Um, like look at someone like father Altman, everybody in the conservative and liberal world thinks he's suspended. He's not, he's, he's under a restricted ministry, but the man's never been suspended. Why? Cause no one's ever found any reason, even in the new code of canon law, 
to mm. suspend Father Jim Altman, right? Are they looking for reasons? Absolutely. But they've never found anything. So a canceled priest is a priest with any reduction of ministry due to an unjust cause. Now, let's talk about the word unjust. If a priest is put in prison for harming a child, that's not a canceled priest because that's a just sentence. Then he's in prison for a just reason. A canceled priest is one who has reduced ministry, whether it's, and there's guys that span all the way from like barely reduced ministry like myself, who are still in good standing, to my friend, I won't say his name, but he's one of the holiest priests I know, who's fully excommunicated um, for preaching against Vatican II. That's all. That's all he did is preach, preach one sermon against Vatican II. Or at least I should say they started his excommunication process, but it, there's a little loophole in the law if you... If you put in a protest against that in the first month, it stops the whole process and the excommunication is invalid until the process is finished. So technically he's not excommunicated, but they tried this. So you got guys all the way from barely reduced ministry all the way to putatively excommunicated. But the, the common denominator among this has to be it's for an unjust reason. Now, of course, liberals listening would say, Oh, so you know what's just and unjust better than the bishops or the successors of the apostles? And the answer is yes, because we have common sense. If you look at which priests or criminals are still in parishes and you look at, you know, Father Jim Altman, he's correcting me. And most people think Father Jim Altman got put on the shelf for that sermon against, quote unquote, Catholic Democrats. No, no, no. He's corrected me twice on this, including a text yesterday. It's when he preached and put in his bulletin two years ago against the pokey poke that he got in the most trouble. The, as Taylor Marshall calls it, injectione. That is, that was the, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for getting him canceled. Actually. Um, is that good enough reason? Of course not. Especially as we see how many people are dying of that at this point. And that is the ultimate reason. So that's how we know these are unjust reasons is now we know you and Sean and I were texting about the different numbers on uh, cardiac issues, cancer from that thing now. Father Jim Altman is literally saving lives. He has restricted ministry for saving lives against the pokey poke that is taking people's lives. That's how we know he's unjustly received a sentence of reduced ministry. Mm. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's that's interesting. Um, another phrase you use I want to ask you about because I see it in your blogs all the time is apostolic catholicism what is that yeah mark that's a good question apostolic catholicism it's it's a term i thought i coined probably didn't coin it um but i kind of got sick of people pretending like traditional catholics just lived in a time warp to the 1950s or the 1920s or the 1870s or something like that because we're really easily dismissed as traditional catholics if it just makes it sound like we want to take a time machine back to a time when there was no problems in the church because, of course, our enemies can say, oh, don't you know there was problems in the 50s? You must be ignorant of that. No, we know we know there was problems in the church in the 1950s, of course, right? So kind of to make people realize we're not talking about a time warp to the 1920s. The reason I brought up the term apostolic Catholicism is to show there's only one faith that was given from Christ to the apostles, and that was transmitted to all the saints that came after them. And then some major break happened in the 1960s with something that conservatives and liberals both call the changes. And the reason I call it apostolic Catholicism is to show that the faith that you and I believe in goes back to the Bible, not to the 1950s, not to the 1920s. It goes back to the Bible. A perfect example of this would be ecumenism. You know, if you look through the documents of Vatican II, it's very, very clear. Now, it puts it implicitly, but it's very clear people of all religions can be saved in their false religions. Any way you slice and dice it, you can extrapolate that. Even though there's a bunch of Vatican II explainers that say that's not what it says, anybody who's very dumb or very smart, who's not Catholic, who reads to it, would immediately come to that conclusion. Anybody in any religion can be saved in that religion. It's very clear in the documents of Vatican II. Jesus said he is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to the Father. That's apostolic Catholicism, which stands at odds with ecumenism, because ecumenism is tantamount to the heresy of religious indifferentism that any religion can get you to heaven. So when we're talking about the heresy of religious indifferentism, 
under cloak of ecumenism, under cloak of pastoral charity to people of different religions. And Jesus endured 17 hours of unspeakable torture to get you and me to heaven, telling us he's the only way to the Father. That's apostolic Catholicism, which flies in the face of ecumenism, which is tantamount to the heresy of religious indifferentism. That is why I'm an apostolic Catholic. So I want to start to wrap this up. Do you, for priests maybe that were in the same situation as you kind of, who may be Novus Ordo priests or that are, you know, looking into tradition or questioning their own priesthood, that sort of thing at this point, do you have any advice for those priests who are, wondering what's happening in the church right now and how to reconcile this with their priesthood. Do you have any advice for those individuals? Yeah, that's definitely the hardest question you've asked me so far because I'm kind of going through the Rolodex in my brain of so many different priests who are at different levels of kind of waking mm-hmm. up to the crisis. Um, I'm going to give real practical instead of theoretical advice to them in light of your question, and it would be this come up with a plan, a safety net, kind of like mine being a hermit sooner than later if you're not going to stop doing the traditional Latin Mass. If you're if you're not going to move away from the seven traditional sacraments out of misguided obedience, because um, we all know Cor Primum, written by Pius V, said nobody, even in the hierarchy, can tell you to stop doing the traditional Latin Mass. That's not what it's called in Cor Primum, but it's very clear the Roman right under Pius V, nobody can tell you not to do that. I believe in cooperation. Maybe I'm not saying a premium, whatever Pius V wrote. Um, so I don't know every priest's conscience. I don't know every priest's knowledge of the tradition of the seven sacraments, but I do know um, things seem to still, still be getting worse before, but I do think things are going to get much, much better in the next five years, but possibly for the next five years, still worse and so you need to be coming up with a practical plan if you're not going to compromise your conscience now if you're going to compromise your conscience you can you can pretty much weasel your way through any situation in the church right now but if you're not going to compromise your conscience um you have to start looking up coming up with a real practical plan to make sure you can do this and this is why i get more phone calls uh, every year about being a diocesan hermit. It's not because these are men that want to leave parish ministry. It's not because they're guys who think they have like some real introverted hermit personality. I certainly don't. It's because they don't want to compromise their conscience anymore. And um, so I got creative in proposing hermit. It wasn't what I thought I was born to do, of course. But I had to get creative because I wasn't allowed to follow what the church had always taught. So they're yeah, going to have to get creative. It's going to be different for everybody because everybody's yeah. in a different situation, a different diocese, different, every, I mean, mindset, the whole thing. So, um, but that, that makes sense. You have a practical plan. Um, maybe yeah. this question's a little easier. What about lay people? You know, what about the lay people who's in a Novus Ordo parish thinking, man, I don't know if I really should go to Latin mass. I'm worried I might be disobedient or I, I think it's weird. I don't know if I really want to do this. You helped me through this process a lot. Do you have any advice for others? Yeah, and it's it's a little louder because the hail started like 15 minutes. I don't know if you can hear oh, that, but I can't hear hail. You can't hear. Okay, pretty loud here. Um, well, I will suggest you do a whole podcast, Mark, on supply jurisdiction because I believe you know I was out in pilgrimage with Taylor Marshall, and we were out. We had 80 people in Fatima, and one person asked me where the angel appears. Very peaceful environment, and he said, "If they take away our Latin mass." can we go? What do we, what do we do? Where should we go? And it's interesting because there's like the 80 people on this trip. Um, the mind, like most of them were pretty new to tradition, you know? And so his question was very, um, green and innocent. So he said, if they take away the Latin mass, what do you do? I said, well, the question you're asking that you don't realize you're asking is, should you go to a priest disobeying his bishop on the Latin mass? And the question behind that you don't realize you're asking is, is there supply jurisdiction for a priest to do the old sacraments even if he doesn't have permission? And the question you're asking behind that that you don't even realize you're asking is, is there a global emergency in the mm-hmm. church at large that um, allows a, not just an emergency for like a laicized priest to give confession to a guy dying in a gutter, is there a global emergency in the church? And so that's such a huge topic. Uh, I'll just encourage you to cover supply jurisdiction in 
in your in one of your sermons because I think honestly, Mark, that's that's not me just punting to you. I really believe that is the question for twenty twenty three to twenty twenty five that your listeners are going to have to really do some research on. <laughs> and not to promote my own blog, but if they if they look at my blog today, Padre Peregrino, I have a link to um, Brian McCall gave a talk at the conference for the Coalition for Canceled Priests, and it's the best description I've ever seen of how St. Thomas Aquinas would argue for supplied jurisdiction. Even though Thomas Aquinas doesn't use the term supplied jurisdiction, he shows the limits of obedience and what the laws actually set up for. I think you as a civil attorney will find it fascinating because he compares St. Thomas Aquinas' view of law to Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes' view of law, mm-hmm. and he shows that the, the, the whole notion of blind obedience to bishops without discerning divine revelation comes from a Hobbesian approach to law instead of a Thomistic approach to law. So I really encourage any of your listeners to go click on my blog, Padre Peregrino, see the first hyperlink in my blog today. On It's called uh, The Red Herring Upon Which Canceled Priests Are Hung. And the first hyperlink in there is to a Brian McCall talk. And that's where he gets into St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, that's, that sounded like a lot of hot air, but it goes right back to your question. What do lay people do? They have to form their conscience to understand what is the law there for, you know, Putting aside all questions of the papacy, we've had 65 years of total confusion, 65 years of attacking tradition, and now we have to ask, is there supply jurisdiction? What was the law set up for? And what is authority? Authority is there to keep the faith. The authority is not there to destroy the faith. The authority is there to keep the faith. And once the authority proves themselves to be overturning the faith, they are not to be listened to. That's the whole message of Fatima. Yeah. No, I totally agree, and I, I've done some articles on that myself on my website, catholicesquire.org, um, on disobedience and why I have no problem attending SSPX masses. And it, I think it comes down, for me, it comes down to uh, understanding what obedience requires and understanding what that virtue is. And once people get that straight, I think it's it's so much easier to see things That's in the right, right way. Yeah. I agree, Mark. Um, well, Father, I really appreciate you being here with me today. I, I, we probably went longer and talked about more things than we even intended, but I think we got the idea of how you went from a liberal Jesuit loving hippie to being a traditional Latin mass only hermit. And um, I think we covered those bases. And did you want to just explain where people can find you? I know you mentioned a website. Um, where else are you at and can people read your stuff? Yeah, if they go, you know, Padre Peregrino is probably the best place to find me for our website and YouTube and podcast. So Padre Peregrino is the website and the YouTube channel. And if you go to Apple or Android podcast, uh, that is it. So, and thanks for all your work, Mark. Uh, people are loving your videos and, and um, you, you really pierce through the, uh, kind of the noise on this stuff to get to the heart of the issues in God's glory and salvation of souls. So thanks for all you do too. Thank you. Father, have a great day. Um, God bless. Thanks buddy. God bless.